0: To Acts Chapter Eight, Acts Chapter Eight, beginning with verse four. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had had previously practiced magic in the city and he amazed the people of Samaria saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest saying this man has the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only uh, been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought that you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart might be forgiven. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, as we now have had your word read in our presence So as it is proclaimed, I pray that Jesus Christ would be lifted up. For He is the substance of your word. He is the object of our faith. Father, I pray that He would be the center of our desires this morning. We pray in His name. Amen. It is amazing to consider the phenomenal growth of the church in its earliest years. It went from an insignificant handful right after Jesus was crucified to about 120 in the 50 days uh, afterwards. And then on the day of Pentecost when Peter stood and preached Uh, several or a few thousand uh, came to Christ and in the coming weeks um, a few thousand more had come to Christ and within the space of that one short generation the gospel had penetrated into the very highest levels of the most powerful government in all the world In fact, as we'll see in several weeks, to be honest, probably several months, when we get to Acts chapter 17, when Paul and Silas came to Thessalonica and they came to preach the gospel, the Jewish religious leaders accused them to um, to the city administrators or city magistrates, they accused them of being the people Who had turned the world upside down. So powerful had the gospel penetrated into the very culture. Not only of Judea. Not only of Samaria. Not only of Asia Minor. But even into parts of Europe. All and less in one short generation. So that they could say that the world was indeed being turned upside down by this gospel. Theologians and sociologists have tried to answer this question. Why or how did the gospel um, uh, spread so rapidly? How did the church grow so quickly? How could the early church grow from obscurity to worldwide recognition so rapidly? What is more remarkable is that the entire Jewish religious establishment and the entire Roman government were doing everything to stop the church. Anything they could do to hinder them, right down to severe persecution that included mass murder of Christians. But yet the church continued to grow, and it continued to grow in the face of unspeakable persecution. So, how did the church grow so rapidly? And then the question is for us what can we learn about how they continue to grow so that we can minister the gospel more effectively and grow the kingdom of God more rapidly in our own day and age here in our community of Brandon, Florida? There's a consensus opinion that has begun to form over the last several decades as to how the church grew so rapidly. And it's a view that I have come to believe as well. Uh, This view is that the church simply grew spontaneously. In other words, it grew from a natural impulse. The church did not need to be forced to grow. It just grew because that's what it was designed to do. Look at the text. Look at verse 4. Verse 4 sums up what I mean about the church growing spontaneously. And before I read the text, remember what we saw last week. The church was located in Jerusalem. It was localized there. All the, all the apostles were there. Um, the, the thousands who had come to Christ uh, had come to Christ because they had either come to Jerusalem for one of the religious festivals or either uh, were living there at the time. And uh, Stephen... Uh, had stood up to preach in front of the Sanhedrin. He was stoned to death. The church was persecuted. The people fled everywhere, uh, all over, uh, but away from Jerusalem. And everywhere they went, whether it was in Judea or um, uh, Samaria, wherever they went, they preached the word. Verse 4, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. That's it. I, I entitled this sermon, Innovative and Effective Evangelism. What made their evangelism so innovative and so effective is that they simply did it. Wherever they went, they preached the Word. That was their method. Today, we leave it to the specialist or to the professional to do evangelism, but in the early church, it was simply the people doing what came natural to them. They recognized they were sinners. They believed the gospel that Jesus Christ came to die for sinners, that He came to save them even though they were undeserving and it was their natural impulse to tell other people about it. It says in verse 4 that wherever they went, they went about preaching the word. Well, what was the content of their preaching? What was the word? But more specifically, what from the word did they preach? Well, look at verse 5. Verse 5 says, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. Christ is the subject of God's Word. The Apostle Paul sums it up like this in 1 Corinthians 1. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and a folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Christ is the subject of the Word of God. In fact, in chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians, Paul says it even more pointedly. He said, When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. My greatest prayer as a pastor is that in all my preaching is focused on Jesus Christ. Whether I am addressing the subjects of marriage, family, relationships, finances, or how to get along with each other, my aim at every point is to preach Jesus Christ. He is our life. He is our hope. He is our Lord. He is our Savior. Let me ask you, is He the center of your life? Is He the object of your desires? Is He the substance of your trust? I have a practice Um that uh, I've asked many people uh, two questions. I've asked several of you these same two questions. The first question is, if you died tonight, do you know for certain uh, that you would go to heaven? And then I ask a follow-up question, um, and that is, let's say you did die tonight, and you stood before God, and God said, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you tell him? Most often I get a very, an answer um, that goes something like this. Well, I'm, I try to be good, I try to be sincere, I try to do good things for other people. Some variation along that lines. And so I ask follow-up questions. And I'll even ask follow-up questions on those follow-up questions. Because what I'm looking for is I'm looking for someone to say, Jesus Christ is my Savior. I put my trust in Him because I know I can't put my trust in my own self because I am a sinner and I could never earn or deserve salvation. And sometimes I'll just... I'll cut right to the chase and I'll tell them, you've told me a lot about what you're doing to try and be saved and about your hope, but you've not once mentioned Jesus Christ. You'd be surprised how many, how many times I get an answer that completely leaves out the name of Jesus, even from church-going people, from people who belong to Bible-believing Jesus preaching churches. There are many Christians who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ. That is why Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Truly, truly, I tell you, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, but will not enter into heaven because they never knew Him. Why did Christianity spread so spontaneously? Why did it spread so rapidly? Simply because Jesus Christ was proclaimed. But in saying that, we cannot, also, we cannot discount the importance of the miraculous signs that were being performed at the same time. When the word was being preached by certain of the Christians, uh, there were miraculous signs being performed. And so in verses 6 through 8... And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed, so that there was much joy in that city. Before I address this subject of miracles, I want to make a parenthetical point. Um, and that is, Philip was not an apostle. Where were the Apostles? Remember last week, the apostles were still in Jerusalem. uh, Acts 8, verse 1. And there arose a great day. I mean, I'm sorry, there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. The apostles stayed behind in Jerusalem. Not because they were scared, actually, because they were um, so firm in their faith that God would take care of them. So they stayed to minister to the church that had stayed behind Uh, Philip was not one of the apostles from best we can tell he was not a pastor Uh, from best we can ascertain he was not even an elder it seems more likely that he was a deacon we met him in Acts chapter 6 remember the uh, seven that were set aside to um, serve food to the widows Philip was one of these seven along with Stephen and uh, this is important because it was. This is important for me to point out because it was not the apostles who were doing the evangelism. They stayed behind in Jerusalem. It was the people who were preaching the gospel. They were the ones who were doing the evangelism. I think we make evangelism too hard these days. I think we feel like we have to have this canned approach before we can do any evangelism. Evangelism is simply setting Jesus Christ apart in your heart. Recognizing what He has done for you and telling others about what He has done. That's that's, that's what evangelism is. That's what the, the early church was doing. They didn't have a canned approach. They had not gone through a a, a a program on how to do evangelism. They were persecuted. They fled. And they told everyone they met about this Jesus who had saved their souls. And the word of God spread. The church grew everywhere they went. Now let's get back to the subject of miracles. Let me just state flatly that miracles are not performed today like they were uh, in the early church. The early church was literally cleaning out hospitals. That is simply not happening today. I do not deny that God works miracles. I, I know He works miracles. I know that He answers prayer. I know that He answers prayer for healing. But when the, the, when, in the early church, when they were preaching the Word of God, they at the same time were performing miracles in literally entire hospitals. Were being cleared out. We don't see what is happening in verses 6 through 8 happening today. Again, let me just say, I do believe in miracles. And I do believe that God answers prayer. But in the way that he was, he was performing miracles on a wholesale, in a wholesale fashion, across an entire city. God is just not choosing to do that today. He can, he might again, but he is not doing that today. Um, but what does that mean for us? How how do we apply this passage? First of all, I believe that God does love to answer our prayers for unbelievers. I want to challenge you to pray for unbelievers. I want to challenge you to ask unbelievers, how might I pray for you? And ask them to give you a specific um, desire and tell them, I want to pray for you in this regard. And God may choose not to answer that prayer. But I believe that He loves, He delights to answer prayers for the unbelievers. What was happening here is when the miracles were taking place, we see it right here in verse 7, um, that many were then drawn to the message. In other words, the miracle got their attention. Miracles validated God's Word. We have the full deposit of God's Word in Scriptures now. And so God doesn't need to do these wholesale miracles to say that this is His Word. We have His Word. But let me challenge you. Pray for unbelievers. Ask them how you can pray for them. And then uh, pray diligently and watch God work. Also, the way that we call attention to ourselves in this day and age, it's not by going out and doing all these miracles. The way we call attention to ourselves, the marketing approach that we take, that God has given us, the way we market ourselves to the world, is by the quality of our lives. In other words, our walk with Christ. As we walk with Christ, as we live on a different plane than the rest of the world, As we follow His Word, as we step out in faith and do things that would seem impossible, and as we love each other in the body of Christ, and as we love our neighbor, and as we love our enemies, that is how we gain the attention of the world, the quality of our lives, and the quality of our love. You wonder why the church has been marginalized in our day and age. I believe it is because we have marginalized our walk with Christ. I believe it is because we have marginalized the requirements of love that Christ has placed upon us. The reason the church is being marginalized in our day and age is because the church in our country is becoming more like the world than like Jesus Christ. Are you attracting more people to Jesus Christ by your life? Or are you contributing to the church's marginalization? Every effort, then we're going to see in the next point, was made to bring the new converts into the larger body of Christ. The apostles, as I said, were, were behind in Jerusalem. And so they began hearing these reports. Up in Samaria, people are coming to Christ. And God had, uh, Jesus had told them, "...you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the furthest ends of the earth." And so they hear these reports. And so then they send John and Peter up to find out what's happening... And when John and Peter get there, it looks like they they did very little investigation. We don't find them investigating. What we find them is laying hands on these new Samaritan converts so that they could receive the Holy Spirit in uh, verses 14 through 17. Now this raises a lot of questions. What does it mean when they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit? This happens several times in the book of Acts. It doesn't simply happen here. It happens in Acts chapter 10. It happens in Acts chapter 19. What I have chosen to do is I have decided I'm not going to address this yet. In fact, I'm going to wait until chapter 19. If you're visiting with us for the first time, and you are curious about this passage, you're going to have to continue visiting until we get to Acts chapter 19. And so I'm going to address that um, this issue at that point. But what's important for us to see this morning is that the apostles, when Peter and John come uh, up to uh, Samaria, they are intent on making sure that these new converts are connected into the body of Christ. That's what they're doing when they're laying on, laying on uh, hands. They're saying that uh, you belong to Christ, that uh, the Holy Spirit uh, lives in you, and you are a part of the Holy Spirit's uh, community. And uh, let me just make this application very briefly, and that is one of the very important ways that you can serve Christ here at Westminster is to look outside yourself when you are here and look around and see if there is someone you haven't met. Welcome them into your lives. Welcome them into the ministry of the church. Help bring them into, to our, into our church family because it is very important that uh, we make every effort to bring uh, people into the larger body of Christ. Verses eight, uh, I'm sorry, verses eighteen through twenty-four. We have this curious, um, this curious account of Simon the sorcerer. Uh, he became a Christian. It says, but his confession. Uh, In Christ was not real. Because uh, verse 18. When Simon saw the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles hands. He offered them money saying give me this power also. So that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. And Peter rebukes him sharply. Peter says... May your, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. And he goes on. Peter is rebuking him sharply because Peter is concerned about the purity of the church. Now, every one of us in this room are sinners. You've heard the the little saying, if you find the perfect church, don't join it, because in joining it, you will ruin it. We are all sinners. And so when I say that Peter is protecting the purity of the church, I don't mean that he is protecting it from a sinner. For we are all sinners. So what does this mean? Well, first of all, Peter is protecting the flock because he knows that Simon, being an unbeliever, coming into the flock would then try and wow the people with his magic and try and lead the the Christians astray. So he's protecting the flock in that regard. He's also protecting Simon from himself. Verse 22, we see that Peter is actually aiming at Simon's repentance. He says, Repent therefore of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and the bonds of iniquity. And of course Simon does not pray, he did not have faith, and so he is not exercising faith, but rather he said to Peter, pray for me. Uh, Showing that Simon indeed did not have faith. But also Peter is protecting the body because the church is a household of faith. Unbelievers bring a different agenda to the church. Unbelievers are always welcome to attend. We love for unbelievers to come and investigate what Christianity is all about, to, to um, belong to the activities of the church. But in terms of becoming a member, an unbeliever... Um, should not become a believer uh, rather an unbeliever should not become a member of the church Um, and one of the things that we are charged as elders to do is to see that that does not happen because unbelievers have a different agenda we see throughout history, unbelievers becoming members of the church, and they exercise power by control and by um, politics and bring worldliness into the church, and it hinders uh, the faith of the church. And I want to say one thing uh, uh, about our church. I I love the leadership of our church. They are men of faith, and um, lead... Uh, In their strong faith. We have leadership that believes. And then finally, we see in verse 25 when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. This passage ends as it began. Everywhere they went, they preached the word. Peter and John have come and the church is now being even more intent on preaching the word. They're going throughout the villages preaching the gospel to the Samaritans. Let me ask you in conclusion. Are you self-propelled in your evangelism? Or would it take a stick of dynamite to blast you out of your pew and into the practice of evangelism? Evangelism it's not that difficult. It really is. Setting Jesus Christ aside as Lord in your heart. Loving Him. fellowshipping with Him. And then simply telling other people about what He has done for you. And as I said earlier, I want to underscore it again. One of the best ways that we can evangelize the lost is simply step out in faith. And as we see our co-workers, our neighbors, our family members, our friends, struggling with the struggles that are common to all of us, ask them, how may I pray for you? And then pray diligently for them. And watch what God will do. Let's pray together. Almighty God, I thank you for these early Christians and their faithfulness to you and their insistence on proclaiming Christ to everyone they met. Because the gospel spread spontaneously. Eventually, through the ages, it spread down to us. Father, I pray that you would help us to set Christ aside in our hearts to sanctify him as our Lord and then speak this glorious gospel uh, that those who have not met Christ may hear of him and might come to receive him as their Lord and Savior. We pray in his name. Amen.